0: Would you rather have wireless on the most reliable network nationwide or unlimited with 5G for $30 a month per line? You don't have to choose with Xfinity Mobile. Wireless so good it keeps one upping itself. Most reliable based on Root's Metric U.S. report. Results vary, not an endorsement. $30 per month per line when you get four lines. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind.
1: It was basically a cube with inside a sphere, where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. Hey, <laughs> Roger, uh, shooting, shooting
0: so this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. UFO Podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. Zencaster is a modern web-based solution for high-quality audio and video podcast production. With a full suite of professional tools, Zencaster allows podcasters to quickly and seamlessly record their guests remotely and produce their podcasts in studio quality. Check out the links in the show description to find out more support for that ufo podcast is brought to you by manscaped who are the best in men's below the waist grooming manscaped offer precision engineered tools for your family jewels manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer the lawnmower 4.0 you heard that right the 4.0 join over 2 million men worldwide who trust manscaped with this exclusive listener offer just for you 20% 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code ANDYUFO at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free worldwide shipping with promo code ANDYUFO. Manscaped engineered the ultimate groin and body trimmer by focusing on intelligent functionality and incredibly comfortable grooming experience. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce any close encounters thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. I now feel confident shaving my tic-tacs. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code ANDYUFO at manscaped.com.
1: I am George Knapp, listening to That UFO Podcast and having one hell of a good time.
0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy, and it's good to get back to the interviews. It seems like with August, uh, we had the Avi Loeb and James Fox interview, and one or two other bits, and then the rest of it's been news and discussion, so lots of interviews lined up over the next couple of weeks, and I've dropped a lot of those names already, with more still to be confirmed, but I'm really excited to get into this one because it's a, a book I've read and enjoyed. I'd like to welcome author and researcher, based out in the lovely island of Malta I visited as a child, Warren Ajus. Warren, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, it's an honour being here.
0: No, it's really good to speak to you. And this book, uh, do you know what? I, I'm going to quote this early on. I was going to bring it up later, but yeah. I listened to an interview you'd done uh, a few months ago and you mentioned that you were, I'm probably going to steal your thunder here because you might have said this <laughs> on the interview, but I really like the fact that you had went looking for a book like this. And you couldn't find one. And that's what drove you to to write the book. And you can really tell that. And we're going to get to to talking more about the book. Um, Of course, the book is Evidence of Extraterrestrials. Over 40 Cases Prove Aliens Have Visited Earth. And that's, that's a bold statement to make just in the title of a book. So exactly. we, we will get to that. Now, you've had quite an interesting time as a researcher and obviously now author. I'd like to find out, firstly, a little background, Warren, from yourself. What's led you in life into ufology to the point of now researching and writing a book?
1: Um, prior to writing this book, um, I've always been interested in, in space and in astronomy. Um uh, and naturally, I, I was familiar with certain, you know, conspiracy theories like the moon landing. Um, but then I, I read the book by Jim Mars, it's called Deline Agenda. And that's that's when I got into UFOs and what it all means. And then I started questioning uh, what what these vehicles were, who, you know, who piloted them, where did they come from? And I had a, a bunch of questions, which which essentially, you know, to this day, we don't know the answers to them um but then I started reading, reading many books um uh, you know uh, Jamars um of course uh, he's one of the most renowned authors and my favorite author um but as I as I kept reading um material, I realized that there was um a lack of um unified book which essentially covered all of uh, the most significant cases and that's what I wanted with this book I wanted to find I wanted to create a book that could be used as a reference book um so that people would, uh, could find perhaps the most convincing cases in just one book essentially
0: excellent and and when you were growing up did you ever have any interest in ufo's extraterrestrials yourself did you ever have any sightings
1: i i want to say yes but i never did unfortunately um uh, after I started reading, I started looking up at the sky more. You know, hoping I could see something, but it always turned out to be either a meteorite or a satellite. Um, I never saw any any weird lights in the sky. Um, I'm still hoping I will I will experience something like that. Um, but this is I always say this. You know, you never see you don't you don't see viruses, but just because you don't see them doesn't mean they don't exist. And it's the same, same. I guess with UFOs, it's just because you don't. Not everybody sees them. It doesn't mean that they don't exist either.
0: That's very, very true. What about any family interests growing up? Did you ever have any relatives who were interested in the subject, or did you just sort of organically get involved in space, astronomy, and, and UFOs?
1: Um, I've been interested in space since I was a kid, but nobody uh, here in Malta, the topic of UFOs, it's not really something we talk about. It's. Um it's just something most people are bothered with. Um and I'm and it's by pure coincidence that I even read Jim Mars's book. Um in actual fact I was reading a book here he he had written about 9-11, and then um I started looking at other books he wrote, and that's when I read Alien Agenda. So it was genuinely by pure coincidence that I read that first book, which then essentially put me down a rabbit hole of researching and writing. Why do you
0: think there there is a lack of interest in Malta uh, in this subject? Obviously, I, I've talked about it on the podcast before. I feel ad nauseum about the, the lack of interest in the UK. Yeah. And it's it's disappointing, especially when you have a big interest in the subject. And I love that a lot of listeners get in touch with me, telling me it's nice to have people to talk to the subject about. Have you found it's a sort of lonely subject to be involved in within Malta?
1: And lonely and also ridiculous. I mean, so many times I have conversations and people um sort of they they talk in such a um in, in a silly way you know they don't take the phenomenon seriously and then as i start speaking you know about that it's not about just weird lights it's about you know advanced technology that's when they start sort of realizing that it's a serious conversation to have um people here it's it's they not only don't talk about it but when they when it is brought up in the media um, everyone just ridicules it, and um, no, no one takes it seriously, which is very infuriating, I guess. Um, but, uh, but you know, it's better than having conversations with people who would just um ridicule you. Um, so I'd rather just not have a conversation rather than wasting my time trying to convince people that that makes sense
0: absolutely and i think a lot of listeners listening could relate to that as well i know i certainly can where you feel you're, you're the only person with a an interest in this subject and is reaching out and getting to know others and having that conversation and it's always nice when you do manage to speak to someone though who doesn't have an interest or who's yeah. very very skeptical and you can just say to them you know forget about aliens and flying saucers and, exactly. and little green men forget about things yeah. coming from mars Let, yeah. let's just talk about what might be being seen because these things are being seen, and um, as great people like yourself from you know other countries that are outside of you know the big nations that people might talk about are trying to promote that culture and conversation as well. Um, you also, as part of your bio, uh, mentioned you interviewed Whitley Schreiber and Stanton Friedman. Yeah. Now, obviously, two famous names within the subject. Of course, Stanton yeah. Friedman no longer with us. Um, how did those interviews also come about?
1: Um. So. So the one thing I wanted to do with my book is present just factual evidence. Um, All of the information I have, it comes from uh, declassified projects or witness statements. Um, But then I'm also familiar, uh, uh, naturally, I'm I'm familiar with these authors, and I know that these are experts in the field. Um, And that's when I wanted to include Stanton in in my book. You know, he's a nuclear physicist. He knows how how, how he's been studying the phenomenon for years. So I reached out to him and and we talked about UFOs and I asked him several questions, um, most notably about, uh, you know, the intentions, um, uh, so on and so forth. And apart from that, he was one of the first researchers in the Roswell case, so I had to um, get his opinion on that. Um, So I included Stanton's interview in the first book. uh, Whitley Streber, given that he's an abductee, I'm holding on to the interview I have with him to include in my second book, which is about abductions, but I'm still working on that, but he's a very genuine man and and his story may seem far- fetched of course, and there are some bold claims in it, but you can sense his genuinity. and 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 it's so traumatic it was so traumatic to him both both physiologically and psychologically that um, to this day, he still says that he's traumatic. I mean, one 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 question I asked him is that if he noticed the difference between who he was in the past and who he is now. And his reply was that prior to his encounter, he was innocent. And now it was as though he was um, traumatized.
0: Absolutely, it's a, it's a well-known case, and and one we'll get to discussing down the line, no doubt, on the podcast as well. Um, but you, you've mentioned the book, and that was interesting. Mm-hmm. You've already mentioned the second book, and we'll I'll ask you some stuff about that later. The book again, evidence of extraterrestrials over forty over forty cases prove aliens have visited Earth. How long ago did you start writing the book? When was your initial ideas for it? When did
1: those come up? Um. So, my initial ideas have. Uh, three years ago that's when I started compiling compiling um, in the documents but the most challenging part of the book is actually um, getting those documents um, mm-hmm. it's easier to google uh, an encounter and then getting the information and copying and pasting it or rephrasing it but I didn't want to do that um, um, I, three years ago I started researching through uh, the freedom of uh, the freedom of Information Act, um, where they essentially declassified documents, and that's when I started getting these documents. Um, and I started reading into cases which are lesser known, um, such as the Frederick um case. Um, and I wanted to include the lesser known cases as well, because everyone knows about Roswell, you know, everyone knows about the battle of LA mm. or the Foo Fighters. And of course I included them in the book, cause you cannot not include them, of course. Um, but I think that there are, the lesser known cases are more convincing than the ones that we talk about a lot. Um, but it took around a year, even more than a year to actually get all the information I wanted. And then a further year to, to write the book, so the process was around two and a half years um it was very difficult. It was, it was such a long process that um there were many times where i asked myself what's the point of even doing all of it um uh, but then when you look at it from as a whole as as a holistic project um i i wanted uh, i actually used this book myself as a reference for when I want you know to to read about a particular case, which I have forgotten details about. Um, And I also um, have have had many people reach out to me and tell me that they like that, you know, they want to read about um, a a crash. They can go to the second section if they want. it's It's divided in a way that it's organized and, you can find what you really want to read about. It's not that kind of book that you have to read from the first page till the last page. It's more about um, according what you want to read about.
0: Yeah, and like you say, it's very well split up. There's the four main parts. So you've got modern sightings, part one. Part two is crashes and landings. Part three is military pursuits. And then part four is government projects. And, you know, at a a glance, you you look through, for example, part three, you've got military pursuits. And you look in there, it mentions the gimbal, the go fast, the tic-tac. And then I, I know about those. I like yeah. to think I know quite a lot about them, and many people listening would probably think so as well. Exactly, yeah. But then you look and go, like you mentioned, there was the, the disappearance of Frederick Valentique, and I was like, okay, do you know what? That piques my interest, and that was the first thing I went to within the book. Yeah. And I, what caught my eye immediately was the transcript of the air traffic control conversation Yeah. Yeah. with his flight. Do you want to talk a little bit about that case in particular?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, And this case is one of my favorites because it... it you know how we were saying that it's not about bright lights in the sky or green men. This is about a serious phenomenon. And this is exactly why. You know, you have a gentleman here, a 20-year-old, um, who passed away because uh, w- when he was chasing a UFO. Um, but to start from the beginning, the the encounter happened um, on the 21st of October in 1978 in Australia. And Valentich... Um, he he was very young he was just 20 years old and he was still training to become a pilot um, uh, but that doesn't mean that he was inexperienced you know um, mm-hmm. he was he was still training and he had around 150 hours of flying experience and on the day of the of the incident he he took off he departed from uh, Mubin um, in Australia and he was planning to land in King Island um and as he was you know prior to his departure he confirmed that everything was was in order um given that he was just training and he had a class for instrument he could only fly when the conditions were optimal so he couldn't fly under uh when when there were uh when it was cloudy or when there wasn't a lot of visibility so the conditions yeah. were perfect essentially um so he took off and you know he reached 4,000 feet. Everything was fine. He climbed to 4,500 feet. Everything was perfect. Um, uh, Something I forgot to mention is that he was flying a Cessna, um, uh, a Cessna 182. And he was flying, um, and around 30 minutes into the encounter, um, he started seeing another aircraft in the sky. Um, He didn't see it on radar first, but he started seeing this aircraft in the sky. And given that he has a... Class 4 rating, it means that there, there shouldn't be close aircrafts in the vicinity. So he started um, looking on his radar to see if there was, um, I don't know, an aircraft perhaps, but nothing showed up. He contacted the Melbourne Air Traffic Control operators for clarification, um, but they too cannot uh, track any object. It's, it's completely an unregistered target. And as he started describing the UFO, um, because it's an uh, unidentified, of course, it was just one thousand feet above his aircraft. It was, you know, the typical UFO shape. It was disc shaped, um, but something he mentioned is that it was very bright. It mm-hmm. was. He compared it to a landing strip. It was significantly larger. Um, uh, and you know, he communicates with the with the air traffic controller, uh, with, with the air traffic control operator. He says that the large aircraft was above him and then it goes beneath him and it continued manoeuvring in this way. At, at one point it's beneath him, at another point it hovers above him and it was completely noiseless. Um, he keeps telling them it's it's just four bright lights um, and then as they were talking he tells them that um, his engine is is idling, it's rough idling and um, and he, one thing that struck me is that he tells them that it's playing some sort of game.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um. It, it it decreased its speed, then it increased its speed. It traveled at different altitudes, and as as the time went by, in a few minutes, um, he tried talking. Um, the air traffic control operators, um, they tried to keep contact with him, but he just. He just doesn't reply. The last thing he tells them, it's that it's hovering on top of him again and it's not an aircraft. And then there's just um, radio silence. No one heard of him and no one even... um, uh, He obviously didn't land in King Island, but he didn't communicate with the air traffic controllers again. Um, uh, And what is also interesting is the extent of the search and rescue operation which happened. Um, naturally, one would assume that if he disappeared, him he, he must have crashed the Cessna. But in my research, um, something I did in my research is that I I researched the um, the sea, the body of sea he would he would have he was traveling over, and it was Bass Strait. It, it's and I found out that it's a relatively very shallow sea. Um, it's it has a depth of fifty to seventy meters, and you know, given the materials of the Cessna. If if the Cessna had, did indeed crash, then the search and rescue team would have easily located the wreckage, not only the wreckage but either an oil slick, um, or the body, of course. But but they didn't find anything. It was he literally just disappeared off the face of the earth, um, naturally never to be seen again. Um, and what makes this case interesting is that there are other corroborating sightings. There there was a family, um, they were uh, traveling by car who. Noticed a bright light in the sky, which suddenly disappeared. Um, now, naturally, I'm I'm not saying that it it was the same UFO, but it's interesting that at the same time that Valentik was talking to the traffic controllers, there was this corroborating sighting as well.
0: the The transcript's quite harrowing as well, and just when you you get into reading it, you can kind of imagine this the scenario in your head and. <laughs> Like yeah. you say, it's a young pilot, but not necessarily a very inexperienced one. They had a good classification and qualification to be flying and clearly quite a scary time as well. And you can just imagine it the way it's written out. And there's that 17 seconds of silence, like you say, and then metallic noise. And that's yeah. it. He's you, never heard from again. Yeah. Why do you think some cases are... Well known and blow up within ufology, yet other cases like this one yeah, go largely I mean. unnoticed. Do you see anything within your research that would indicate why this isn't a very well known case? Um,
1: Prime, I was at first I was going to say it's, it's because it happened in Australia, not the United States, but that's not necessarily true because there are other individuals who lost their lives, such as Thomas Mantell and Lieutenants Monkland Watson. They both lost their lives as they were chasing UFOs. And it's a shame, really, that this case is not one of the most um, known ones, uh, because it's genuinely, it's terrifying, of course. Um, I believe, in my opinion, the reason why such cases are not as known is because of the response which uh, the Air Force has. In in this case, there wasn't much of a response, in the sense, naturally, there wasn't a full-blown investigation, or at least um, it wasn't... And be classified if there was one, but it's unfortunate that not many people talk about it because I am sure that if we talk about these cases more, then may, people would would consider the, the topic much more serious. If we compare this to the Roswell crash, I know that this is much more important. Um, and of course, um, it, it's more detrimental as well.
0: Yeah, and there's lots more um, less unknown cases like that and amongst all those very well-known uh, and well-researched cases as well. And I won't go into uh, any more myself because that just starts spoiling the book for people. People should pick it up. <laughs> Do you have any particular case or part of the book that you really enjoyed writing and researching?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, so, of course, um, uh, the Tic Tac and Gimbal, of course, they are very well-known cases, but one of my favourite cases um, and, and and I guess we'll stay on the topic of people <laughs> disappearing and dying which is quite morbid but uh, one of my favorite cases was the death of Thomas Mentel um, basically there was a case in 1948 um, and Thomas Mantel he was very experienced um, he was a military guy um, and he was patrolling the sky um, he, well the Air Force Base in Godman they received a call saying that they had seen a UFO in the sky. Um and they confirmed that it was not military in any way um so the godman air force base they they uh, they they asked they asked mantel to to scramble in a jet and pursue the object and what is interesting is that he was talking to the air traffic controllers as well, and at one point he tells them that it's above him um he's going to twenty thousand feet. And as he does say that, he disappears completely. Um, he disappears, but naturally, with this case, Thomas Mentel's aircraft actually crashed, um, uh, which is different than Valentin, of course. So here, people saw Mentel chasing a bright light, um, followed by his aircraft crashing to the ground. Um, so this is one of my, my, this is perhaps my one of my favorite topics. I want to my one of my favorite cases. Um, because you have a credible source, you have a credible military man, um, and there are many witnesses who saw the UFO and the mental aircraft and they, of course, witnessed uh, the fatal crash.
0: It's interesting that you've picked a case where someone, of course, passes away or dies as a result of the the, the, the yeah. encounter. Yeah. I also picked one of those, yet they're lesser known cases, most, if not all exclusively, of the Big, well-known cases in ufology don't result in a death of exactly. you know, a human being yeah and i wonder if that's part of the reason do you think that people tend to go towards them because it's a more peaceful yeah.
1: encounter in that sense yeah yeah i definitely get what you mean um like I said, it's quite morbid when someone loses their lives. But if we look at Roswell, it's entertaining. You know, it's something that's it's 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 something somewhat trivial in the sense that did a flying saucer crash or was it a weather balloon? Even the the response of the military, it's ludicrous, and that in itself makes it something people want to talk about. But if we look at Mantell's death and Valentich's disappearance, it's serious. There wasn't um, a ridiculous. Response by the military. And perhaps that's why people perhaps shy away from them because, I mean, it's quite morbid. And it's if you read about it too much, it, it brings you down in a sense when compared to Roswell or the Battle of LA, where those cases are just fascinating. You know, you're seeing a UFO. Um, the military is shooting at it, but it's not coming down. That is just fascinating. But these cases tend to be more unfortunate.
0: Now, the the book's been out, I think, was it April this year it was released? Yeah, yeah, in April. Yeah, uh, so it's been out now. We're, we're talking four months. Is there anything you're looking back and w- you would change about the book? Or was there anything that you wanted to include, but for some reason you couldn't quite make it into the final copy?
1: Um, I definitely wanted to include pictures. Um, I think that's the one thing that's missing from the book. Um, but it was, uh, it. I could. we couldn't do it. From the, for the time frame we had and also to get there are so many cases that to get uh, rights for each case it would have been close to impossible. Um, uh, and now that now uh, after the book has been published and I've had multiple conversations, uh, people told me that there were um, they sometimes I have a conversation and they tell me, did you hear about this case or that case? Um, and of course <laughs> I'm like, yeah, maybe that should have made the cut. Um, But I'm very happy with the way it turned out, because in a sense, it also encourages the reader to do their own research. Um, In fact, there are citations everywhere, so someone can easily look up the source I used. Um, So I'm happy that it's written in a way that it will encourage someone who wants to learn more to uh, do further readings as well
0: yeah and i can i can assure any readers in what i've read of the book and the parts i've jumped in and out of it's written in such a way that I don't think you need the pictures and that's something I tend to do with UFO books is you pick them up and flick through for the pictures don't you yeah (laughs) it's written in a way you'll see it in your head and like I say that Frederick Valentich uh, encounter I can see it as I'm reading it in my head what it would look like to me and you know what sometimes that's better than looking at a picture from you know the 70s or 60s or or 80s where it's grainy fuzzy and it's just it's just an you know, unknown light on yeah. the page anyway. So I, I think that leaves a little bit more to the imagination, which can be really lacking sometimes in, yeah. in these books. And it's it's very well written in that sense, Warren, as well.
1: That means so much. Thank you.
0: No, no, it's it's true. I wouldn't just say that otherwise, so I would make <laughs> up something else. Um, I, I don't want to spoil any more of the content of the book. People should give that a read. Um, it gives a lot of really good coverage to existing cases. And also, like I've said, those, those lesser known cases as well are really fascinating. The, the timing of the book, though, was there anything to do with the release date that it came out at a time of year when there were a lot of eyes on the subject? People were getting into the subject because we'd had the task force report being announced yeah. and it was due to come out in the June. Uh, was there anything to that or was that just a happy coincidence?
1: Um, the thing is, I, I had written the book, but I held on to it for a very long time. Um, uh, and then as I was reading um, the... For for example, I, by, in, to, in 2017, I had written the majority of the book. Um, but then as the Tic Tac UFO um, report came out, the, the video, I realized that many more reports are going to come out. And that's when we, we saw Gimbal and GoFast. And that's when we heard about ATIP as well. Um, so, so the more time passed, the more information came out. And as well, when I was writing, I was realizing that the more time I have, the more information I'm getting. There's always something that I that potentially I missed. And I'm sure that if I go back I can find even more information. Um so I held on to the book for a very long time because things were progressing in a way that something was happening. You know, the conversation was actually starting. But then in twenty twenty I sent it in uh, to the publishers. Um And um, the timing was perfect because the videos were creating a conversation. Um, The task force, uh, the reports were creating a conversation. And then there is, um, I I threw in my book, which also created a conversation. I had people reading, reading my book first. Um, And then I tell them, listen, people are actually talking about it right now. There's a document about to come out and I would, uh, you know, encourage them to look at the videos, look at the report. So, um it was a bit of a coincidence, a lucky coincidence. But also, uh, I'm happy that it happened in such a way.
0: Uh, at later on, I'm going to get your thoughts on the task force report as well. But I just want to mention, before we get to listener questions, Warren, um, you are, uh, your second book, you mentioned that you're already writing. Um, how has that come about so quickly? And you mentioned it's going to be on the abduction phenomenon, yes?
1: Yes, Exactly. Um, interestingly, many of the information I have right now is that I was I was planning to include it in, in the first book. The first I was planning on the first book being divided into uh UFO sightings and abductions, but there were so many sightings that it would have been such a long book and I myself would not have picked it up. It would have been discouraging to pick it up to pick up. And I also don't want to do a disservice to the cases or the abductions. You know, they deserve um all the all the detail that they have so so that's why the first book that i i wanted to focus just on sightings and now the second book on abductions so that i make sure that i include every single detail possible um so so that's how um so a lot of the information i had already researched but now i'm going over it again uh, firstly to make sure that it's correct and now i'm also adding a lot of information
0: as well what- what sort of timescale are you looking at for for getting that book written and out to the public? I'm hoping to
1: publish it definitely in the in, the, in this year or the following one. Um, I I don't like rushing myself. well I do rush myself a lot, um, and when there's that sort of pressure, um, it it tends to be proactive or uh, it it can either be proactive or it keeps you back from writing the best that you can write. But right now I'm taking it easy in the sense that I'm making sure that each chapter that I write, it's it's perfect and I'm happy with it. And that's when I move on to the next chapter. So I'm taking it slowly to make sure that everything I write is accurate and it's well-written and it doesn't do a disservice to the people who actually um, had the encounter themselves.
0: Well, that certainly comes out in the finished product of the first book. So I, I would look forward to that within the second, Boren. Warren, uh, listener questions. Let's get to some of those for you. Um, Dave asked, now, the third section in your book covers military responses to UFO sightings. Mm-hmm. Do you think the military have modified their pursuit
1: or tracking strategy over the years? Um, they definitely, uh, 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 can, is, is the question asking how has it uh, changed over time?
0: Yeah, well, he was asking, do you think they've modified their pursuit or tracking well, strategy over, over time, if you're looking at yes, cases from okay.
1: the 50s, 60s, 70s onwards? Do you think it's changed or have yeah. they not been able to? I think most definitely, for example, if we look at um, the 40s or or the 50s, even later on in the years, a lot of jets were scrambled to, to chase down these UFOs. And I think over time, we're hearing less about that because of the technology which we have. Um, for example, I, if I when I was doing my research for the Tic Tac UFO, I was reading about the technology which they have um, on the USS Nimitz and all these sensors they have. It's genuinely just mind-blowing. Um, so I don't think that, that, that they do need to scramble a UFO jet when they can do everything on the screen, um, on deck. They don't need to scramble any fighter jets, in my opinion. Um, but it also shows in the cases. For example... Uh, the tic-tac, the gimbal, um, a lot of the information we have, it's from the radar. Naturally, hmm. our radar is so advanced nowadays that um, I think the focus is more on that now as opposed to chasing down UFOs, trying to pursue um, pursue them, essentially.
0: I, I think as well, a lot of the recent, especially when it comes to the tic-tac, some of the conversation around the behavior of these objects Um, and I likened it to a little bit like if you are if you have a fly or you know a bee or a wasp that's annoying you and you try to swat it with your hand you never seem to be able to hit it even if it's sitting still or and that's the way these objects they almost seem indifferent to any form of engagement until the point where they have to move and that makes me wonder is it some sort of control or you know defense mechanism that there's something in the proximity triggers an alert and it moves yeah or is there some intelligent control behind those particularly have you got any thoughts on that
1: Ah, that's such a perfect way to put it um in my opinion if these aircrafts are not piloted um remotely are not remotely controlled then the anatomy of these beings must be completely different Um, we're looking at objects who exceed the speed of sound i mean by tens by 10 times and there's there's the, no human being and no anatomy can even withstand that so i think that they could be remotely controlled in that way if they're not remotely controlled then the anatomy of these beings is so different than ours um and i think um as a Right now, I'm thinking, uh, why aren't we sort of chasing them down? And I think it's because we're observing more nowadays. I think we learned that these objects, we cannot pursue them, because we, uh, we can never catch them. So it makes sense to just observe them from afar and see how they behave, see their maneuvers, see, how, see their propulsion system. Um, I think observation is uh, it, a better tool. It's, it's a better learning tool than actually chasing them down.
0: Absolutely. Um, Dave also asks Warren. In your book, you are keen to only look at well-evidenced sightings. Yes. Has this become harder to determine since the advent of digital photography from the nineties onwards?
1: Yes, that uh, that's a big yes, definitely. Um, that's a good question. For example, the McMinnville photographs. The reason, um, they're old. You know, they couldn't have replicated them. But nowadays. Even if you go on on social media, you see so many pictures of UFOs. Um, Most of them are badly edited, and you know that they're photoshopped, but others are very convincing. Um, So that's why I go to documented cases, cases which there was a formal investigation. Um, I'm not saying that if you see a UFO and you take a picture of it, it means that it's not extraterrestrial or anything, but I wanted to focus on facts um, and documented facts. For the simple reason that that's one way of convincing people. Um, Telling someone that you saw a UFO and you captured it on your iPhone is one thing, but then showing that same person uh, an Air Force document showing the full-scale response, that's more convincing and that's something else.
0: Yeah, and and that's a really good question from Dave and something we've discussed on the podcast, Warren, that if... You look online, like you said, there are so many clear pictures. Everyone wants a 4K or an 8K resolution image. If we did see one or there was one out there already, Mm -hmm. we would probably dismiss it as being fake because it would look too good. And also, what
1: what does a genuine UFO or UAP look like? 1000%, 100%. I think... the, the the way that these aircrafts operate, it's with an anti-gravity propulsion system. And these gravitational waves, they create a distortion, which um, uh, when you take a picture of it's just um, a ball of light. So it's sort of impossible to take a clear picture of them. But like you said, if we do take a 4K picture of it and we see these details, it's something out of a sci-fi movie. And I myself, if I saw a picture and it was so detailed, I would immediately dismiss it. Um uh, so that's a good point.
0: Absolutely, and do you know what? There's there's probably a good chance, Warren, that there's an image out there online that everyone dismisses as being fake. Yeah. That is 100% genuine exactly. and we just go nope definitely not and I'm probably guilty of that as well but that's yeah. just the subject that, that, that we're in um Nathan has a question and I've got to give Nathan a shout out as he is a, a regular contributor and long-time listener to the podcast but he is now also a co-host of Calling All Beings a, a new podcast from himself and DJ San Marco uh, that's amazing uh, yeah Nathan's a really good guy to talk to as well and he had some really good questions for you um he wants to know why you think hard evidence is
1: so difficult to come by. Um, because it's so impossible to access. Um, impossible in the sense that um, it's so difficult to access this information that you just give up and you just don't see the point in it. For example, when I used to research UFOs, prior to writing a book and before I wanted to write a book, I used to find it so difficult to actually find something that's, so, that's credible um, that it made it impossible to even find an Air Force document. It took pages and pages down the Google search um, search bar to actually find the report. Um, so the fact that it's so inaccessible and it's so difficult to, to get your hands on, it just, that's why I guess, um, that's why it's so difficult. And many people just couldn't be bothered doing it as well.
0: An interesting follow-up to that from Nathan is, in your opinion, what would a scientific study of extraterrestrials look like if they themselves don't want to be studied? Uh, and he mentions he's further interested in this because if ET are substantially more advanced than we are, how would we even have a framework by which to understand them and their
1: technology? That's uh, that's a perfect question. Um, I think a scientific study into... Into its ETs would be how the aircrafts or, operate. Um, for instance, Bob Lazar, um, just, uh, I'm, I'm sure that Nathan has heard of him. Um, but we yeah. look, at, look at how the aircraft operates. Um, we look at the propulsion system. Um, but apart from that, um, with the scientific method, you need factual evidence. And, um, and if you follow the laws of physics, it becomes impossible to even investigate it. Um, like Nathan said, the the technology is so advanced that we cannot comprehend how these aircrafts operate or how these uh, how their their body their anatomy. We just cannot understand it. So I think there's a discrepancy, and also um, it's like paradoxical. It's like you want to do a scientific investigation, but if we're going to use the laws of physics, um, it's it's going to become impossible to actually investigate it. Um, and then moving on to are uh, do they want to be known? Do they want to be seen? I see it as though they are here for their own reasons and not ours, in the sense that when you drive down and you see uh, a cow on the side of the street, you don't stop to have a conversation with it. Um, you just continue on your way. And I think it's are in the same way. They're just not bothered. They don't care about our intentions. They don't care about whether we want to investigate them or not. Um, and I think that's why it's also so difficult to investigate it as well, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Do you do you think that we have the understanding or technology at the moment to study these objects substantially? Or do you think we're still a ways off?
1: I, uh, I think we are getting there. I think that the fact that we are considering the idea of the existence of an anti-gravity propulsion system that's already a step forward. I mean a few years ago you wouldn't even consider such a thing. but I think nowadays that we're throwing these ideas that you would see in a sci-fi movie and we're actually considering them, it makes it more um, it makes it a little bit easier, I guess, to understand how these aircraft may operate. Um, by no means am I saying that it is easy to investigate them because I think it's impossible to even understand how they fully work but i think that nowadays there are some some theories which sort of make sense but are also limited in their own way as well i
0: want to ask just very quickly before we go into the next listener question mm-hmm. the 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 title of the book again evidence of extraterrestrials are you think are you going along the lines that this is all extraterrestrial or would you subscribe to the idea that potentially some of these objects may be from this planet already? And I, by that, I still don't mean human.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, by uh, well, uh, going uh, by extraterrestrial, I, I refer to otherworldly, so originaries from outside Earth. Um, but the premise of of the investigation of the book is that is that it, the way the aircraft operates could it be man made? if the answer is no then i would i i rather i put it in the category of extraterrestrial um but i make that distinction very clearly in the sense that i i do consider the fact that this could be you know advanced technology by china or or russia but if something genuinely um uh, defies the law of gravity defies the law of physics or the natural laws, then it's impossible for it to be extraterrestrial. It's impossible for it to be terrestrial. It's impossible to for it to have been made on Earth. And that's when it goes into the extraterrestrial category. Uh, that's how I sort of worked it out in my head.
0: Do, do you think there's any possibility, though, Warren, that we have another species sharing this same planet, um, potentially, not in the same dimension but maybe they are that we just don't know are already here with us and yeah. that's where some of these come from
1: yeah um the th- i the thing is that there are so many things that we don't know even if we look at dimension uh, dimensions and the idea of interdimensions um and even spirituality in the sense that we don't we have very limited information about it so if if i were to say no it's impossible that's just Um, that's just completely inaccurate because I am full aware that the possibility is there Um, and that's an interesting question, could it be an interdimensional being still um, here on earth and yes um, that's so interesting because I never considered that as a possibility for these beings to have constructed such an aircraft but it's completely possible of course it definitely is
0: yeah, especially from the, the tic tac point of view, there's there's a lot of people um, thinking that given these objects seem to be around the Catalina Islands off the coast yeah. of San Diego, yeah, that they they potentially they've been seen coming in from orbit and that's yeah. not necessarily deep space we, we don't know that yet but they exactly. then drop down and then they go back under the water yeah that yeah. it could be that they're, they're already from here but that's just who knows it's 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 crazy because when you first get into this subject everyone's the same where you wonder are there aliens coming and flying saucers from other planets but yeah. very quickly there's so much more opens up in the conversation and it's just uh, i think so much is on the table right now exactly um,
1: and and the thailand is definitely a hotspot and sometimes we have to look um, beneath us as opposed to what's above us, maybe you know un- unidentified submerged objects are a thing it's not always um from outside space but the ocean is even more um uh, complex and we don't we know less about the ocean than we do about space so we have to keep that in mind as well
0: Absolutely. Uh, less about me. Let's go on with some more listener questions. Um, we had Genosis asks Are there any cases you feel show significant behavior by the phenomenon, yet they remain relatively unspoken about in mainstream ufology?
1: Yes. Um, the malicious, well, it's a harsh word to say, but the malicious intentions that these beings may have, in the sense that uh, we talked about Valentech and Mantel, but there are other instances in which human beings were harmed or were threatened. Um, an example of these UFOs threatening um, military aircrafts is the Brazilian uh, UFO encounter or the Tehran incident. These are all instances in which the UFOs either posed harm or threatened to pose harm. Um, and like I said, it's not always just seeing a bright light in the sky. Sometimes there's actual a threat to security. Where there's all there's always a threat to security, but in these instances, um the UFOs are posing direct threat to um to the pilots.
0: Absolutely especially in some of those cases we we talked about earlier it's something that many aren't necessarily comfortable talking about in the community because it shows it could be accidental but there is potentially an element of of danger involved in these encounters whether that's a physical you know interaction or even just radiation left over and people getting sick sometime later that, that could be something though that some of these beings don't even realize happens or it might be something that they're just not they don't care about in the sense that we don't necessarily care about stepping on an ant exactly harming a smaller animal or a fish because it's it's beneath us and lower but that's just an idea yeah Um, last last listener question warren from mike he says with the risk that something is a hoax or people misremember facts how difficult is it to take a step back and try and remain unbiased on the stories that you're writing about
1: um that's a, a good question and my approach was that can i can I try and disprove this case? If it was very easy to disprove a case, I would just not include it in the book. Um, And and, and that's why in the book, I just present cases which are very, very difficult to disprove because there were many cases in which the account was very convincing. But then as you take a a, a deeper look at it, you start noticing certain plot holes and then you start noticing certain um, uh, inaccuracies um, so it's very important to take a step back. And you go into the case with, without um, uh, the intention of proving that it's extraterrestrial. So when I was the, uh, researching the case, I didn't go with the idea of proving that this is ET. It's more um, investigating the, the case and then what do the results say? So it's important not to go into cases with already a preconceived notion that it's going to be an extraterrestrial encounter. Of course.
0: Th- thank you to the listeners for sending in those questions. Uh, thanks to everyone who got in touch. We're going to finish off, Warren, with the quick fire round. I'm going to mention some names, some places, and you can give me as short an answer as you want, or you can discuss it in a bit more detail. It's completely up to yourself. Cool. So the first one is someone you mentioned earlier. But what are your thoughts on Bob Lazar?
1: Bob is very credible, um, and there's there's no reason why to think that it's a hoax. I mean, the guy um, essentially his life was threatened numerous occasions, and if you look at all of his all of his accounts, all of his details. I think he's 100% legit. I mean, the guy talked about element 115 before we even knew it existed. And there's, you can't have more proof than that.
0: I am um, just a side note. I actually bought my uh, Bob Lazar sketch that they, he's advertising on his website, and it arrived today, all That's the way amazing. from the United States. That's um, amazing. I was I was also hit with a twenty-one pounds custom charge. So <laughs> there's just, there's just another way the government's getting at Bob Lazar <laughs> and you know knocking him So yeah, that was that was nice to pay this morning. So thanks for that, the UK postal service and customs. Um, next up, Warren Skinwalker Ranch. What are your thoughts? Ah. Uh,
1: I think it's part fiction, part facts. Um, I think it's a bunch of facts, but also we as humans, we throw in a little bit of our imagination to make it more interesting. That's my opinion on it.
0: What do you think then? I'll I'll just push you a little bit on that. Uh, What do you think may realistically be going on there?
1: I think it, it it is definitely a hotspot, you know, like like where the encounter happened. But I think that it's a lot of things which we do not know. So when someone says that, um, you know, there's UFOs, there's um, a bunch of supernatural things happening, potentially. But you cannot come to conclusions just because, um, uh, mysterious activities are happening. So I think it's a lot of unanswered questions and little details which can allow us to come to any conclusions sure next up your thoughts on luis elizondo i think once again he's genuine um i if we look at bob lazard the government did everything to try and discredit him and that's what happened that's what's happening with elizondo as well mm, um, yep. uh, i mean the his if we look at the the claims he has made I think he backed it up with evidence, you know he backed up with evidence, and of course the Pentagon is going to say the guy never worked here. Of course, they're going to say he was never the director of ATIP because if they did actually acknowledge his um his his presence in in the in ATIP, they would essentially be saying that everything he's saying is true. so the easy way the easiest way to deal with it is to essentially just try and discredit him.
0: No, I I agree, and it's a very similar pattern as to what happened then as to to what's happening now. I just think with Louise Elizondo, it's happening more in the public sphere, as we're yeah. seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something that we've we've not really touched on yet. Um, but might be the answer. Maybe within the title of your book. But I want to know, Warren, what in your opinion is behind this phenomenon? What is going on?
1: Um I think what's going on is that there is there are other beings from other planets other uni- um other galaxies um extraterrestrial beings and they're using us uh, they're using the planet for their own for their own reasons for their own sources um as well as the beings um they're using us sort of as laboratory rats in the sense that they're they're observing us uh, if you look at ob- abductions um, it's a lot of um, experiments, um, but it's also got to do with the psyche as well. I think it's got more to do with our with the psyche rather than the physical body. So I think if we had to look at the phenomenon as a whole, as a holistic way, it would be extraterrestrial beings using um, our planet for its resources for for their own research, and then using humans for their own research for their own research for their own, research, for their own intentions as well.
0: Excellent. And finally, uh, Warren, what
1: does disclosure mean to you? Um, disclosure means having a conversation about the phenomenon. Um, and disclosure is happening right now. I mean, there will never be a day where, where uh, there will be a CNN headline saying the government admits aliens are real. That will never happen. And it doesn't need to happen because um, with the information and the evidence we have right now, we can come to a conclusion ourselves. So I would say that disclosure is a conversation which we have um, where we present the facts and we separate facts from fiction.
0: Awesome, really good answer. Warren, it's been amazing talking to you just before you uh, leave us today. How can people follow you and also how can they get a hold of your work?
1: Um, So my book is available on Amazon, uh, Book Depository or anywhere else where uh, where you get books. And you can follow me on Facebook. Um, I post there um, about UFO UFO news, uh, uh, things about my book, um, and anything UFO related. Excellent. That's
0: great. Warren, uh, we look forward to welcoming you back on the podcast in the future, especially when that second book comes
1: out. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, And thank you for the listeners as well. Very interesting questions.
0: Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFOUAPAM. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. He wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer More like a hubcap designed by Chaucer A little Baroque and quite steampunk Like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window And when I shut out the screen he made it an issue I don't think he expected me to see his ass But I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Fateful, on me. I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like you awake, I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself And then I climbed out the window after the elf And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head And everything was weird and everything was red I called up my boys, they thought this was noise They thought it was a dream, they thought it was my toys They thought it was my problems And they think I should see therapy And I don't know what it- Because it doesn't really scare me Face, consider your lies, consider your life, consider your-
1: Your internet give you unlimited wireless with 5G? Of
0: course, and my wireless saves me 400 bucks a year. That's because you both have Xfinity.
1: Internet and wireless so good, it keeps one-upping itself. Get started with Xfinity Internet for $20 a month for 12 months with a one-year agreement. Plus, get $300 back when you add Xfinity Mobile. Internet offer includes $10 per month automatic payments and paperless billing discount with a stored bank account. It's $1,1022. Restrictions apply. New Connect Internet customers only. Equipment, taxes, and fees extra and subject to change. After term, regular rates apply. Xfinity Internet required. $300 offerings, $1,1022. Requires new line activation. Other restrictions apply. Progressive presents Forced Metaphors, about bundling your home and auto.
0: When you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get great savings and round-the-clock protection,
1: which is as beautiful as looking your first-born child in the eyes
0: for the first time. Well, that's a bit much. Maybe it's more like looking your second-born child in the eyes for, like, the third or fourth time. Point being, the savings and round-the-clock protection are really, really magical.